0: Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Tango Alpha Lima Podcast. I'm Mark CV, the Special Projects Counselor of the American Legion, coming at you from the American Legion National Headquarters here in Indianapolis. Now, being a, uh, a 70s kid, I always know that when the phrase, a very special episode comes up on TV, I'm about to watch Wonder Years or Blossom about teen pregnancy or bullying or something else that's going to make me grow as a person. So I've always kind of hated the quote, a very special episode, but... Hopefully, we're going to redefine that. Uh, We've got a heck of a show. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can see that we've got a a few extra faces. Uh, We're going to have some fun here. We don't know how long this one's going to go, so you might get one podcast out of this. You might get a two-parter. You might get a three-parter. But I uh, did want to start by noting that I am joined, as always, by Jeff Daly, our intrepid former Marine, California, and a uh, Michigan guy, I might add. And Ashley garbolja Maldonado, a former MP, a former Ohio person, and uh, now coming at us from Washington, D.C. Guys, welcome. It's good to see you, as always. Good to be here. Yes. Uh, so our special guest today, and we're going to get to them right now, is uh, three prominent Legionnaires who have all served in law enforcement and who have... A sort of boots on the ground view of what's happening in the country right now with regard to race relations, uh, the application of constitutional rights in the form of the protests that are going on. And unfortunately, I've also seen a complete breakdown of societal norms when these things turn into riots and other counterproductive behavior. Um, so I want to start by introducing each of these Uh our first guest is Autry James, Autry, AJ, as he's known is the past judge advocate for the Department of California, one of the smartest people I know, and I know Jeff uh, and I are founding members of the AJ fan club, so <laughs> we're excited to have him on. Be sure to send your applications to us when you're ready. Uh, Autry is a 20-year 20, 20 law enforcement officer and investigator and supervisor before switching over to being a trial attorney, and he now serves, if I'm correct here, as the deputy district attorney for Alameda County. That's correct. Uh, Also joining us from California is Hugh Crooks. Hugh, wave at us if you would. There you go. Uh, And before I go into his bio, I did want to note that Hugh and I, despite not knowing each other before this, are uh, fellow 11 Bravo 4-0 infantry sergeants. So we have that in common. Uh, Unlike me, however, uh, Hugh felt the need to brag about his good conduct medal, which (laughs)
2: I did,
0: did not appreciate at all. But uh, he served 14 months in Vietnam, stretching from 1967 to 69. Uh, again, he came out with his good conduct medal and an air medal, which is uh, incredibly rare for an infantryman. Uh, he's a former safety police chief who served 29 and a half years, including during the LA riots after the Rodney King verdict uh, beating came out. Uh, he's an American Legion life member, he's served as commander post district and area. He was actually the second Afro American commander from the Department of California in our 100 years. He's a state chaplain, uh, former, or are you currently the NEC man or formerly?
1: I was, no, I was the NEC.
0: Is formerly the NEC man from the state of California. And in 2017, he was awarded a lifetime achievement award uh, by the Department of California. And last but certainly not least is Sean Powers. Sean, wave at us, there you are a former New York uh, Police Department officer who was a plainclothes officer in a unit that often was in Harlem and other New York City areas. Uh, he served from 82 to 88 uh, in uh, various air cav and medevac units and was in from 88 to 93 uh, in the inactive reserve. And you've held a variety of positions, I assume, in the Department of New York?
3: Yes, yes. Yeah. And uh, my post alone, I've been the commander since 2004.
0: Okay, great. Wow. Try to give it up;
3: but they won't
0: yeah. say Nobody else will take it. <laughs> so, guys, uh, we're obviously living in some pretty weird, not uh, weird <laughs> times right now. Uh, people from coast to coast are locked inside because of the global pandemic, and meanwhile, we have this sort of reevaluation of race relations that's playing out basically in front of our eyes, and and in large part to a trapped audience who's sitting at home watching this. So we wanted to put together a group of people whose perspectives on how this is playing out will help inform our own opinions. Now, we haven't gone into this with any expected outcome. We don't even know how long this podcast is going to be. We didn't do any pre-show interviews or anything else. So we want this to be a natural uh, growth of something and a discussion that we can start here. But guys, I want to welcome you. Thank you so very much for coming today and uh, donating your time to talk to us about this. So uh, we're gonna start with you, AJ, but if you could tell us a little bit about where your background helps inform you as to what's happening and and what you think about what you're seeing in America right now? Uh, well, I'll start
4: with what I think uh, about what I'm seeing. I think it is unfortunate that in twenty you know twenty that we're still having this conversation to be quite honest with you. Uh, it is something that I had hoped had been that we would have been able to. Kind of get past and, and get resolved many many years ago, but it it, it hasn't, uh, and that is unfortunate it, it is also very unfortunate that there are folks who are using the opportunity um, brought about by this discussion to go out and burn and loot uh, That's unacceptable in my opinion you know others may may have different opinions about that, but in my opinion that's absolutely unacceptable that's not the way to gather, uh, to garner the attention of others. You know, in terms of my background, um, I kind of grew up a, a little bit uh, around the country, uh, originally from Michigan, came to California, spent my summers in New Orleans. So I've got experience of both the Midwest and the West and the South, uh, and, and kind of some of the things that have gone along with that, uh, born in 68, uh, 62, um, so I've seen, particularly in the South, a number of things that, you know, most people my age who've lived in California have not seen or experienced. Um, so my views are shaped by the experiences that I've had along the way. But those experiences also include positive things. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of, there's a lot of points in my life that I can point to where I could have gone left but went right. And that was because of the help of other individuals and those individuals were people of all different races so i have i think i have somewhat of a unique perspective in that in some ways i can see both sides of the issues um and i'm willing to share what uh, what i see or what i know or my experiences um it's a matter of are people ready and willing to listen
0: yeah that's uh that's that's the kind of discussion we're hoping to have here today. Um, Hugh, uh, what is what's sort of your background and where do you come at this from? as As the
1: senior person in this group, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. i I have seen a, a number of things. First off, like you said, I was born in Chicago, raised in Los Angeles. I said the only thing at time I ever went to the South was in the military which was a total eye-opener in the 60s, you would think all of this was all done. And I'm going to share this real quick with you. I walked into, in my training, went to AIT. I don't know any of you know, Fort Polk, Louisiana. And the reason I've never gone back to Louisiana since.
0: That's the worst place place uh, in the entire world.
1: Walked into a bar with some of my fellow soldiers, and the guy looked up and said, Excuse me, fellas, we don't serve colored and Spanish in here. This is 1967. I'm getting ready to go to Vietnam. I was totally shocked. And mm-hmm. also as a chief of a department, uh, I look at it totally different than a lot of, maybe the lot of the line officers. But I did notice, like you said, when I'm looking at the television and I'm seeing what's going on out there, I see people taking advantage of of people that legitimately are protesting. I am very proud of those kids that are protesting. They're doing stuff that like, and just like Audrey said, I thought was actually a lot of that stuff was done, but I know it's not. And I know, and I have grandsons that I'm concerned with that, you know what, hey, what if they meet that one wrong cop? Yeah, so yeah, there's a lot of things I'm I'm concerned with out there. And I don't want to see what happened with Rodney King All over again. And I'm gonna say and I'll say this real quick. I was traumatized by being there because it took me back. I thought I was in the middle of Vietnam again. I looked over city and I saw fires. I saw I saw uh, black and whites running all over the place and I saw helicopters. The only thing I didn't see were planes strapping buildings. And it's like, oh my God, what happened?
0: Yeah, and and Sean, uh, I th- I think it's great to have you included in here. Um, obviously, uh, you're a little paler than your average resident of <laughs> Harlem. Uh, so a little bit, a little, just a little a li- bit. So you you uh, and, and I think it's important to see that side as well. Like how how did you work as a plainclothes police officer in Harlem? It, it, you know, you were there for quite a long time, so clearly you were respected. Uh, how do we bridge that gap, and and where do you come at this from?
3: Well, Harlem right now is very gentrified, so <laughs> you could blend in perfectly. Um, as a matter of fact, my sister used to live down there, and so, and again, you know, the same parents, so she had the same complexion. Um, but I was a cop back there in the mid '90s, where you, the, the pale complexion was. Uh, it, was, it wasn't seen very often.
2: Wow.
3: And um, I was with a small unit. There was only six of us. Um, everybody else was of color, except for me. They actually gave me the nickname, Token White Guy. Uh, <laughs> in, in the NYPD, they find something you, that that you don't like, and that'll end up being your nickname. <laughs> so uh, we walked into one of their precincts, and and the guys asked, who's this guy? He said, oh, yeah, he's our Token White Guy. And it stuck after that. My nickname was Token. Um but we we blend into the community i mean they obviously they could i couldn't the, the only way i got in and it was by a fluke is i was wearing one of my old uh, field jackets one time got into a, a fight with a perp got up and i had grown the hair out grown the beard out which i regrew now um uh, and while i'm sitting here recovering um had a cup of chocolate and you know, it's, it's, it's actually funny. And some kid put money in my cup and the guys looked at me and he started laughing and he realized she thought I was a homeless veteran. And I, oh. and they're like, oh, wow. let's give it a shot. And I went out there and I actually stood in, in the, cause we were looking for somebody on 125th street and St. Nicholas Avenue. For those who don't know, that's right in the center of Harlem. And I was there and I was accepted. And, It was great. I had a great experience. I never had, I had all the time we were there. We made tons of arrests. Um, I ended up with uh, zero complaints from anybody, even the guys I arrested. You know, it's, I I don't understand the color thing. I don't, I don't understand it. I don't understand why, why there's biases. If you treat people right, they'll treat you right, is, is what I've come to find out.
2: Yeah. Yep. Jeff, Jeff, you're up. All right uh, we're not talking a lot as hosts today, but I am going to pontificate for a few seconds in ramping up to my question now everybody here was is military related and all of our guests were law enforcement related and it brings to mind to me that there's a there's a there's a gap between military culture and policing culture uh, that is that seems to come up in these instances, because in the military, if you, and let's not say, let's not pretend that there's not racial bias in the military, because there is. Uh, The difference is in the military, if you do something screwed up, there are swift and significant consequences. And what I'm seeing a lot of times, when police screw up, they get paid leave and the union comes out and says it's a good shoot. Everybody kind of falls in line, and they go back to their job. So what I'm wondering is, with, with the police mimicking the military in so many ways, how do we get them to mimic the, the military culture of consequence out there on the street? AJ? Yeah,
4: let me back up just a little bit uh, on that statement, Jeff. Um, that whole thing about swift consequences in the military, uh, I'm not going to necessarily buy that 100%, my friend. And, and I'll tell you why. The things that, that, that people were complaining about in policing are things that my parents were complaining about in policing, the way that they were being treated when nobody was looking. When the lights weren't on, this is how people got treated. The same thing happens in the military. Now, you know, I'm a Coast Guard veteran. And if you think that there was not, if anyone thinks, not you in particular, but if anyone thinks that there was not racism in the military or that people mistreated people without consequences in the military, that's just not true. I mean, what we're seeing now is, for instance, in a case of sexual assault, how many women for how long were victimized and had no place to go, no one to talk to, and no one, even when they reported it, would do anything about it. I mean, that's that we know that to be true right now, because all of that is coming out. All of that information is being delivered. But what we don't do in the military is the same thing we don't do in regular society. We don't talk about racism we don't talk about the issues that hold others back. I mean, throughout this time, one of the things that I've been proud of is is to see African American leaders in the military coming forth and talking about their experiences in the military. That to me has been incredible because the words that they have written are the same words and the same feelings that I have had in the military outside of the military, growing up. I mean, it's like everyday life for me. And when you feel that all the time, that that just seems like that's the way life is. And I know it's not supposed to be that way, but that's the experience that I'm having. You know, even right now when I hear these things, yeah, it is very disheartening. But at the same time, it's like, okay, you know what? I'm not alone. So I don't know that the military is necessarily the best way to go about setting, you know, the swift consequences part of it, and I certainly don't think that, you know, our our local police taking on a militaristic view is the way to go either. I think that's just very problematic. I had a chief uh, who this was 20 years ago, 25 years ago maybe. And our agency wanted to go to those BDUs that everybody's wearing. You know, those, the, 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 well, they're BDUs. You know what BDUs are. Um, and he wouldn't do it. And you know why he wouldn't do it? Because he said, we are not the military. That may be fine for them, but we have to work in a civilian atmosphere. People expect you to dress and act professionally. And if you don't do that, then you may not act that way. And I don't want to put you in that position. So we wore those heavy, hot wool uniforms while he was chief. And frankly, I I think that was the right decision. You know, looking back now, I, I may not have liked it at the time because it was easier to wash them things and put them right back on the next day. But I tell you what, he knew what he was talking about in that sense. Um, so, you know, I, I think we have to get away from necessarily comparing the military to um, to civilian life, it's two different things, uh, but there are similar issues that run through it
2: all. Jeff, I'll toss it back to you. Uh... Yeah, I just wanted to clarify. Now, if it, and and it could be, I live in the bubble of being in a Marine Corps infantry unit. We didn't have we didn't have women, so I don't know any of I don't know any of that except for what I hear. But I will say that when there are rules of engagement with the military. And if you shoot, if you go to an end to say that you're always under attack uh, in the military, there are rules of engagement. If you shoot the wrong person, no matter what, there are swift and significant consequences, at least in modern day military. And I don't see that happening on the policing side. And it and it troubles me. AJ, if you
0: want to continue on that.
2: Yeah, I can, I can. Um, and,
4: and, you know, in some sense it troubles me as well because the way the law is written, it does tend to provide a justification for law enforcement officers to use their weapons in certain circumstances. Uh, and those circumstances are often different than what we face on a military battlefield. Um, what I keep telling folks is, is this, wh- for the vast majority of the 800,000 police officers in the United States, if you tell them what the rules are, they will meet your expectation. Okay? They will follow the rules. If you change the rules, they may not like it, but they will. the vast majority of the 800,000 will follow the rules. Okay? Right now, the way the law is written Well, most of these shootings come back as justified because under the law, they're justified. Now, if if society decides to change how uh, how that's seen, then officers will be retrained. And I expect that the vast majority of those 800,000 officers will still follow the rules. The ones that don't will get charged. And I think we're seeing that. We don't see it often, but you know, if officers are following what the law is, then we shouldn't see it often where officers are outside of the law. Now, if the argument is all about changing the rules, that's a conversation that everybody, all the stakeholders, including the police, need to be at the table having that conversation about because they're the ones that are gonna have to go out there and put themselves in harm's way and enforce those laws.
0: and I'll, and I'll follow up my question later on. It's going is to deal with the qualified immunity side of that and uh, just go into that a little bit. But uh, Jeff, if you got another question for Hugh, or, or do you want him to answer oh. the same?
2: Yeah, I kind of want to answer the, the, the same bit of it. And uh, I'm looking forward to your uh, qualified immunity later.
1: Okay, Jeff, I kind of agree with you to a certain extent. Military and policing are very similar and the fact that they're in the, when and when you're police, you are a quasi-military operation. You have uniforms, you have rules you follow. All these are almost the same. It's a lot of it depends on your who's in charge. As as a chief of department, I'm not one of those people that say, "Oh, we look over everything. You screw up, you get things happen to you." Just like in the you have rules of engagement, right? In the military, if you sh- and I know in Vietnam. You shot someone illegally, you went to jail. I knew guys that went to jail, right? The same thing can happen in the police force. You know, however, I want you to think about how many policemen out there, and if you think about it this way, let me change it. How many people ride motors? you ride motorcycle? How many people ride motorcycles out there, right? Used to. You have all these motorcycle riders out there, but you have one percenters. What are the one percenters? Those are, your outlaw, those are your outlaw motorcycle riders, right? They're the ones that don't follow any rules. In every profession, you have that same thing. You have those one percenters. You know, and either they're not going to follow them or they're going to use the rules against the way society's norms are. They say, this is the way I want it to be, and that's what they do. So if you look at that, and, and yes, and like you said, there are a lot of things happen now that didn't happen back when I my day. We didn't have females. We didn't have any women in my units and things like that. However, I, one of the things I do is I teach a class on combat trauma. And the trauma is what do you do when you have a female who's gone now, who's gone to combat, been shot at just like you have, Right, and she's she's going through PTSD, right, and so now what happens? And when she has to go to to therapy, and she's been sexually abused by her NCOIC, and she can't say anything because she's going to be ostracized by her entire unit, right? And that can happen in the military, and that can happen in the police force.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: So you know, so you know, you can't say that you can't really separate the two because both of them. You have those, depending on what the people on top and how they're doing, and, and let's be honest with you, I don't know any way to say it, you've got white, old white men here, you've got old white men here a lot of times, although you've got more, you, you, you're getting more people of color, and I'm not just talking about black and African Americans that make people of color that are being chiefs, but still, they bring their biases and prejudice with them. Everybody, excuse my expression, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, has a prejudice in this world. You, Jeff, every one of us have a bias. I have a prejudice against people who steal from other people. I do not like them, and I think they're using air somebody else can use to breathe. But that's my bias and my prejudice. Just like I have that, there are people that have those same prejudice for race. They should not be in that position, Yes. I agree with you. And to say that nothing is done, that's necessarily true. But if I have a bias, I don't like females, let's say, in my department. And I had my uh, co- not, I'll say, other chiefs that didn't particularly like females, right? I had a female assistant chief. They, uh, and so, I mean, because she was the most, she was the person with the most experience and the best person for that job. But there are people who did not like that. So what do you do with that?
0: Yeah.
1: So so that you have to you have to all, all that is all considered all together.
0: Sure, Sean, uh, if you want to weigh in on the same question, go ahead, go uh, on, Sean, A- Autry, we can hear you typing there. By the way, if you want to, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you did Sorry, I
4: was I was reaching out to one of our uh, one of yeah. our
0: hosts there. Yeah uh sean uh you're up well
3: i've i've seen it um more on like what these two gentlemen pointed out perfectly i mean aj said it perfectly um i do peer counseling and i do it for for cops you know nypd there's an organization called police officers providing peer assistance and since 2003 we you know we've reached out to veterans obviously me being a veteran And since I'm retired, I get the phone calls all the time. And I see more trauma on the sexual side with women in the military than they do in the police department. Yes. and, and, And the stories are horrible, how it's been covered up, and this is recently. This isn't back in the 80s, this isn't back in the 90s, this is today. And it's all covered up, it's swept under the rug. In the NYPD, I can't speak for all other police departments, and, and and I can only say what I've experienced, what I've seen. In the NYPD, if that ever comes out, they're going after the guys that day. They're calling them in off of work. I've seen a guy called in off of vacation when you're not supposed to touch him. Called in off vacation, said, you answer to this right now, right here. And that's it. Where, you know, the other side of the military, I I. not not in the military now, but, but through the counseling, you know, peer counseling with these women, it's, it's not being done. It's not being done the
0: same way. Yeah. Jeff, did you want to wrap that up in any way
2: or. Well, I did. I mean, it's, first of all, we're not the end of the show, but I want to thank all All of you for the perspectives that, you know, you give me from different, uh, from, from different points of view around this. And uh, I'm just so grateful for this. And I'm so grateful that we're getting this conversation sparked in the military community because it really troubled me. There was a task and purpose article, I think we talked about it before, that says that veterans organizations aren't talking about this. And uh, right now, the American Legion is. And and I'm really appreciative of that. Ashley, this is
0: absolutely the longest you've ever been without talking, isn't it?
5: (laughs) Uh, what happens if i say yes (laughs) Um,
0: she's she's like a coiled tiger everybody get ready all right ashley you're (laughs) up
5: so i just want to take a moment and just kind of with the last just responses from jeff's questions i appreciate uh, you bring it into the conversation some of the sexist attitudes that are out there surrounding both women in service and just women in general and leadership positions. Um, you know, my background is military police. I was a, I was an NCO and I'm unfortunately a statistic of military sexual trauma. And I know exactly what it feels like to be retaliate or fear of retaliation to have served alongside one of my rapists for five years and to do my job and do my job well um and to still to this day be fighting for that that validation even through claim process so i understand for all the women that are out there that are listening uh i i feel you and i empathize on such a, a deep level and i'm really glad that we're having the conversation and you know in the overarching i know many women and many women of color who have this issue in the service who are um are, are fearful. I know we have a young lady out there right now who is who is missing out of Fort Hood um, with you know similar sexual allegations and you know to the big picture of this, it's it's really important that we're having this conversation. Um, I wanted to dive a little bit uh, deeper into um, police, and I wanted to talk a little bit about the war on drugs. Uh, I've taken a reasonable amount of time to you know. Watched different documentaries. I, I recently watched uh, the Rodney King uh, documentary that's on Netflix, and I also watched another in um, regards to thir- it's 13, or I believe it's yeah. uh, thirteenth. Yeah, I, I think it's just 13 is what it's uh, referred to as. And it uh, it goes into about incarceration and the increase in incarceration. If I'm not mistaken, there's over, what, 2 million people incarcerated. This is a uh, you know, first world country where you have more people incarcerated than whatever value you want to stick next to that. And unfortunately, like uh, if I'm not mistaken and remind me of the timeline, but right after the Rodney King, um, uh, everything that happened there, there was the L.A. riots. Um, you know, I know Clinton came into administration. They did the war on drugs. And there was this huge volume of folks that were now being incarcerated. And unfortunately, a lot of them were black and minority. And I think that we have missed a uh, a, a, a huge gap in, in leadership because of just the the slew of issues that come with incarceration. And I wanted to get your perspective on, you know, how incarceration and uh, policing and all of those kind of combinational items have kind of set the tone for today's climate.
0: Autry, we'll start with you again yeah um
4: i come at it from the perspective of that frankly i hated the war on drugs Uh, i mean i was a cop in 85 is when i first became a law enforcement a sworn law enforcement officer before that i was working in police departments And, and the war on drugs from my perspective was really a war on communities of color um you know, and, and that's just, uh, again, this is my perspective. Others may feel differently, and that's fine, and I accept that. But what, what happened as a result of the war on drugs is, is that, particularly, say, in my, my particular communities, uh, African-American communities, many of the men were taken out of the homes, incarcerated, and kids were left to grow up without any father figures. What does that do to our society when you don't have somebody there who can teach you the right way you know there we face enough challenges on our own but when we create this so-called war against drugs it's really a war against civilians in our communities and it was wrong you know i, I to this day i hate drug cases anybody who's ever seen me know me you know, dealt with me in court, knows I hate drug cases. I've never, ever tried a drug case because I hate them that much, okay? So that's the perspective I come from because I've seen what it's done to my community. I've seen what it's done to places like East Oakland where I grew up or in Detroit, Michigan or in New Orleans. I've seen exactly what the outcome of the war on drugs was and I'm not still not happy about it. So, you know, that's that's how I view it. I I am happy that we're talking about reform and getting some of these folks who have been locked up for years and years over drug cases out. Drugs are a scourge on our society, but we have to find a different way to deal with that rather than just locking everybody up. Yeah, so did
0: you did you want to follow up on that, Ashley?
5: Absolutely. Um, you know, my background is in public health, and I've I've done quite a a lengthy amount of research and studying, uh, not only in communities that have been affected by, for example, opioid crisis or um, cocaine, heroin, all the above. And I'm always really shocked and awed that we turned we criminalize substance abuses, and instead of creating instead of making it a public health problem, right? Just as right now in the COVID pandemic. We are now concerned with washing our hands, social distancing, all of the above. That is a public health response, and we should have had a public response or public health response to this, as as a start. And I, I want to echo the the question on to to our, our other interviewees. So, how do you you know how do you feel about you know this situation? How you know with either um, you know criminal reform, the situation that has. Happened and such. I mean, we're talking huge timeline here, but
0: Uh, Yeah, we'll go to, we'll go to Hugh in a second. I think Autry wanted to weigh in on
4: something real quick Yeah, I want to, I want to add one more thing to that. I I think I have to give the disclaimer Because I actually, one of the last supervisory roles I had in the police department, unfortunately, was in the narcotics unit So (laughs) as much as I hated that, that was a role that I was assigned to and I tried to do everything I could to steer us away from low-level users, stay away from them, and, and worry about the individuals who were bringing narcotics uh, into the community. That's what I wanted our unit to focus on. So I wanted to make sure that anybody who knows me knows I'm not trying to be hypocritical here. I hate it. I, that was not my favorite assignment, but I did my job. So
1: Hugh, you're up. I just think it's really strange having to be a child. I grew up in the 50s and the 60s. You guys weren't even thought of during that time. And when I was in high school, you know, one of the things we used to all say, we'd say the government, why are they criminalizing marijuana? Why don't we tax it? How much money could be made by taxing it? Well, how many years did it take for us to finally decriminalize to a certain extent? And start taxing it. Why did it take so long? And what about all those people, just like Audrey says, that put, they were put and incarcerated behind a joint or two, and and, and their whole lives totally ruined. You're I mean, okay, I grew up in Watts. Now, but you have to understand, that's a bad. Everyone goes, oh my God. But when I grew up there in the 50s and the 60s, it was a middle class, diverse. Neighborhood in on my block, there was every single ethnicity you can name. There were Japanese, there were Hispanics, there were there were African Americans, there were white. There was everybody, right? And you had families there. But when, as it said, as the war on drugs progressed, fathers started disappearing. People now, people are being raised without one-parent homes. That's not acceptable, especially if, what do you expect to happen? And I'm just not talking about, I'd almost just say people of color, because I'm not just talking about African-Americans. I'm talking about a whole lot of other people. What do you think is happening to their families? How are they going to survive? And just think about what the the things that they have to do now to be able to survive. And just like Ashley said, it should have been and should be more of a public health thing in a lot of ways. Now I'm not going to tell you that I'm I'm all for it. That doesn't make it sound like I'm all for drugs and drugs. Me, no, that is not. I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm still I was still a cop. You know I can't. You know I, there's a lot of things I don't. I I mean I've never taken drugs. I'll be honest with you. I have no desire to take drugs. But that's me. You might want to. That's your choice. If it's legal, more power to you yeah you know, but you know what? there's a lot of things we can decriminalize and 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 all we're doing all we did was make as far as I was concerned, and I look at it now, we made a whole bunch of folks wealthy in in central and south america very very we i mean face it how, how many billionaires are there in colombia okay i'm safe. i'm I'm off my <laughs> snowbox go ahead It's good Two so much.
5: i I thought that you brought up a a really good point and um one of the things that i I recall studying is as family structure and and i studied a lot of military families and studying the deconstruction of family due to the um, absence of uh, a key parental figure is uh is just something that's uh, that's always stuck on in my mind when i'm i'm looking at different research and um as we discussed and excuse me go over more about just like reform and police it's just i want the audience to understand that like there is a lot of um really excellent research out there on um, the development and structures of family community wellness um socioeconomic disadvantaged communities like there's a lot of research and information out there and you don't think that this is something new people have been researching and studying this I mean, we can even go back to uh, red line laws that, you know, prohibited African-Americans from receiving or being eligible for loans to move into what we refer to as white suburbia. Um, I think it was Levittown. I remember reading uh, research in regards to that and articles stating that, you know, these policies and these laws, and I think this kind of rolls into our our next interview because, you know, we go into – um, the law. We look at policy. We look at procedure. It's how do we how do we break how do we break some of those chains on some of those issues longstanding.
0: Sean Sean, before we go to you, uh, it looks like Hugh wants to uh, weigh in real quick.
1: Uh, r- real quick, <laughs> I'm just gonna add on what Ashley said. A lot of what we are seeing and what we have done is a result of what's happened in the past. We of the American Legion are not above. I'm going to explain in California what many of you don't know, is we actually had a district in the southern part of California that was established for one reason. You know why? To keep all posts of color in southern California in one place. And this was written in our departmental bylaws in the 30s. The only reason I found out about it because the district said, well, we, uh, we, we want to know what our, our geographical boundaries were. And when we pulled it, we said, you really don't, because this is illegal as hell. <laughs> you know, you cannot do this. And they actually wrote this. They said, all posts of color will be within these boundaries, within this area, period. So, yes, I mean, it's there. And we, so we have to be aware and not let that happen again in the future.
5: Is that, does that still exist or has that been, no? it's exactly. that's been dismantled, right? Okay. I just want to make sure for yeah, our audience, it, for our viewers or no, our listeners that don't know. It yeah, it's it was, gone.
1: It was, it was, I, like I said, the only reason it came up and we didn't even realize it because, but what happened was we had a judge advocate that uh, was looking at boundaries for, for a particular district. And the district was saying they had a new post and they said, well, this should be in our what district should it be in and when he looked up the original boundaries for districts this was it.
3: Oh, oh. oh no looks like
0: looks like we lost Hugh there i don't know what happened we'll get we'll get Hugh back online here in a second but <laughs> ashley if you wanted to uh re-ask your question or refocus it to sean
5: Absolutely. Sure, but- he looks so. He looks so passionate on video for all of oh, our boy. listeners. He was like getting into it, getting close to the camera. You. <laughs> so to to reframe, uh, I you know I know your background. I want to hear your opinion in regards to you know policy, procedure, um, things that systematically have affected um, this this long overdue conversation of, of of racism, sexism, and things that you see within your. Within your boundaries.
3: Okay, I thought we we're still going with the war on drugs. That's why. Yeah, I,
5: I mean, all, all, all within right. scope. It's what? all within the scope. War that, on drugs. You was answer so... whatever question you want. <laughs> that's what I was doing. We're touching at. on all kinds of important things right now, so whatever yeah. is applicable yeah. to you.
3: Well, just just to uh, get to the war on drugs. I mean, you, you had two great answers before I got in there, um, and and I love both of them. Now, one of the things that I'm also on the American Legion's National PTSD-TBI Committee uh, because, you know, the peer counseling that I do and and all that stuff. We put through that we wanted testing of marijuana because apparently Israel did this, but we wanted the testing to be done here, and it's not being done appropriately because the U.S. government isn't giving the proper proper plants to test. They're getting stems and seeds, and and we, we had one of the, you know, this doctor came in and she explained it all to us and the American Legion came out with a resolution we want this tested if it works, we want to use it for, you know our veterans coming back, if this works for PTSD we want that, now with that being a cop, and again, I'm going to reiterate this, I have never smoked a joint in my life, mm-hmm. I, I've never taken anything except prescription drugs that's just, you know, that's just me um, but I've seen people who smoke marijuana. I know, I I live in New York. You know, was a cop in Manhattan for a long time. Uh, I would rather arrest a guy who's high on marijuana than a guy who's drinking. The guy who's drinking, he wants to fight you. I mean, you get in some awful, awful, awful fights. You get a guy who's smoking weed, and he just wants a pizza. You know. know, (laughs) You know, you get him back in to say, you know, you'd get the guy who's, you know, drunk driver who just ran into four four cars going, destroyed four cars, you get him out, now he wants to fight you. The guy's 5'7", seven, 150 pounds, and he wants to take me on, and I'm a little bigger than normal. <laughs> and and then you get the guy who's high and he's like, you know, he does something that that causes to us to arrest him. And he's very compliant, very complacent, you know, hey. The other drugs and again Throwing marijuana off to the side. Mm-hmm. Throwing that off to the side. The other drugs I have a problem with is if they're they're killing people, uh, they're non-regulated. I mean, they're putting fentanyl in some of these drugs. Yeah. And that's that's killing people like that. You know, jump onto that. If the government regulated it, if it was putting a certain thing, like, I don't know, maybe do like what Amsterdam does. You know, you want to do it, go ahead and do it. But this is where you have to do it. Um I don't know. I I I, you know we talk about the drug pusher. That's who I would want to go after. The the people who are taking the drugs, I believe more in helping them Mm -hmm. than incarcerating them. I think all right, you're arrested, you have these drugs on you, okay, you have to go to a mandatory drug rehabilitation place we're going to put you there. Now, if you've committed a crime along with being higher on drugs, you know, then you got to deal with the crime. But if it's drugs alone, put them in a mandatory place where they can dry out, get the help they need. You know, just throwing somebody, you know, in jail for that, I, I don't see it. All
0: right, everybody, thanks for joining us here at the Tango Alpha Lima podcast. We hope you've enjoyed what's uh, been a pretty rewarding and large topic for us we've decided to break this into two sections uh so the second section will be coming to you shortly but we would encourage you to go and uh, review us and to follow us wherever you listen to your podcast if you're doing if you're watching this on youtube be sure to to like us on youtube and if you have any feedback for anything we've discussed here please just leave it in the comments uh all we ask you be respectful and we will uh We will take that advice and see what we can do and see if we can do a better job in the future. But for now, I hope you've enjoyed this and we look forward to you listening to part two.